Amen. This morning we come to the John chapters 17, 18, and 19. I will never forget the summer of 2021 and the studies that we've had in the Gospel of John. It's been a, a life-changing um, study for my own soul, and I, I believe it's, it's fed us. We've only got two weeks left. Uh, next week, we take chapters 20 and 21, and uh, it's the resurrection accounts in John's Gospel. But this morning, it's really um, chapters 17, 18, and 19, which start in the valley where Jesus is praying, and it ends with him dead in a tomb. And that's what we have this morning. Chapters 18 and 19 are some of the most gripping, some of the most profound, some of the most action-packed, almost gruesome chapters in the whole Bible. It's the whole execution of Christ. It starts with his betrayal, uh, with uh, being uh, betrayed by Judas, captured by soldiers, uh, taken before the Jewish leaders, then the Roman leaders, the mockery, the crown of thorns, um, and, and the unjust charges, the crowd chanting, crucify him, and then him being crucified. And from the cross, the four Gospels contain seven statements Jesus made from the cross. Four of the seven are in John's Gospel, and the reason for that is probably because John may well have been the only disciple to actually watch the crucifixion of Christ. We have no record of any of the other disciples. We know Peter was not there. He was hiding. Uh, he had denied Christ. So we know Peter was not there. And it, we don't know of any other disciple other than John, but we know John was there. And because he overheard these words, this is not hearsay. In fact, the four statements that John writes, he's the only gospel writer that records these. And they begin here, and they're captured in John chapter 19. The first one is from verse 26. It's Jesus speaking to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Now, this is a touching moment. And this is as emotional it gets. Here Jesus is hanging from the cross. He spots his mother in the crowd. And instead of saying mom, he calls her woman. So there's a distancing from Jesus to his mother that takes place right out of the gate. Woman, behold your son. And, and, and as harsh sounding as this is, it was the best gift Jesus could give his mother at this moment because Mary had to see Jesus more than her biological child. She needed to see him in a league all by himself. This was not a hand-holding moment. This was not a sentimental, emotional feelings. This is a moment when when. when Jesus was walking this road all by himself. His mother could not walk with him. Woman, behold your son. 
And then compassionately, Jesus speaks to John standing next to his his mother and says in chapter 19, the next verse, verse 27, behold your mother. You see, Jesus was the oldest child of Mary. And uh, Mary was in a boyfriend, girlfriend. They were engaged. She was engaged to be married to Joseph, but they were not married before Christ's birth. After Christ's birth, they got married. We know that story. And uh, together, Mary and Joseph had a number of children. But, But Jesus was the firstborn, and because we also know Joseph is now dead, Joseph did not live to see this moment in Jesus' life. He's now gone. He's out of the picture. So the primary caregiver for Mary is now Jesus. So Jesus entrusts the care of Mary to his disciple John and says to John, Behold your mother. Then the next verse. Here he is. His back has been lacerated. He's lost pints of blood. He's been gasping for breath. From crucifixion, tetanus has set into his body. And from the cross, he's panting for every breath. And so, physiologically, he was utterly dehydrated and physically thirsty. And so he says, I thirst. This is not a ghost. This is not an aberration. This is not uh, someone filling in for Jesus. This is Jesus. And it's one of the proofs, and there are many, but when Jesus ate with his disciples, he ate because he was physically hungry. When he ate the Passover meal, he wasn't play-acting. He, he, he wasn't a, a, uh, a robot. He had all physical functions. And now on the cross, he's, he is hurting, he's excruciating, and he's thirsty. Don't underestimate the reality and the, the, the essential fact of the humanity of Jesus. And his body here, is, is utterly thirsty, and he says it. Then the last of the four statements contained here, it's verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, the mocking wine that they gave him to drink, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, when he said that, what's finished? Well, was he simply saying, I'm done, like my life is finished? No, there's a lot more to it than that. His mission was finished. He'd run the race. He'd finished the course. He'd accomplished his his purpose on earth. So his mission was finished. But the word that he spoke, it's English, it's three words, but In the Greek language, it was one word, and it was actually a commercial word used in finance, and the actual word was tetelestai, tetelestai. Now, we don't use that word. 
but it literally means paid in full. So if you were to put a down payment on a piece of property, um, it would still belong, the, the deed or the, 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 the ownership would not be yours. It would still be the person until you, you paid off that property. If you bought a boat in, in the first century and you put a, a down payment down, it would not be yours. It wouldn't be signed over to you until you paid in full. It's just like today. If you get a car, you don't get, until you pay completely for that car, if you get any kind of loan, you don't get the title to that car until it's paid off. You, you can get a bill of sale, but, but you don't get the, the title to the car. It was the same way in the first century. No, there were no cars, but for land, boats, so forth. Large objects, little objects, if you bought a stick of gum or, or chewing tobacco or whatever, you didn't get a receipt that said paid in full. But big items, it was marked tetelestai. So when Jesus, is, his last words from the cross, tetelestai, paid in full. So what was he talking about? What he was talking about is the debt that you and I owed God. He paid for. And he paid in full. He didn't pay for half your salvation. He paid for the whole thing. He paid in full. All the debt that we've accrued. In a way, you could put it this way. You know, when, when people commit serious crimes, they might get five years, 10 years, 20 years. You can get a life sentence. You can get a double life sentence. Some people have gotten four life sentences. Well, I mean, what is that, four life sentences? Well, it's true. There, there are, are horrible crimes that, that people get slapped with four life sentences. Well, whatever your debt was up to, A life sentence, two life sentences. I don't know what mine was up to, but it was up there. The last thing he said on the cross is, I've paid, I've served your life sentence. You've been bought, you've been, I paid it in full for your salvation. I served your sentence fully. Completely. Nothing left out. Nothing that you have to add. Now you have to do your own penance. No, no, no. It's paid in full. Paid in full. Paid in full completely. That's why Paul could come along years later and write Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Tetelestai, he paid in full. Completely paid for. Praise God. Praise God. And then, then we come to these words after he's breathed his last. It says that the Romans, who had invented this gruesome crucifixion, the, 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 the worst 
suffering form of execution ever invented. You, you know, others had hanging. The problem with hanging is it would only last a few minutes. Uh, the French invented the guillotine. The problem with that is gross, but it, 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 it was a split second. No suffering. The, 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 uh, the Romans wanted something that was equally gross, but would drag the suffering out over hours. So they created the, the, the crucifixion. Because they wanted to just drag it out. And that they enjoyed all that. Can you believe that? And then, when they had enough, when the show was over, they, the soldiers would break the, the shins so that they couldn't breathe anymore and then that they'd die. But they came to Jesus and he, was already, he wasn't breathing. So to make sure that, that he was dead, rather than breaking his shins, they took one of the Roman spears and it wasn't in, because Jesus was not at eye level. He's above them on the cross. So they slid it under the rib cage up into the, the heart and it punctures the heart and the sac around the heart called the pericardium. And so out flowed water and blood as proof that he had died. Then it says, from these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones were broken. They looked at him whom they had pierced. But you know, this, this, what we see here in John 18 and 19 is the greatest scandal in history. It was a scandal for the Jews to demand the crucifixion of, of Christ who loved them and who came for them. It was a scandal for the Romans to be manipulated by the Jews to go along with it. It was a scandal for the crowd to cry out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. It was a scandal for Jesus, the beloved, the beautiful Jesus, to, to take it. It was a scandal for the Father to witness it. And it was a scandal for you and for me because some of our DNA was in the wounds of Jesus. Some of your DNA, some of my DNA, is in the wounds of Jesus. You know, everything, so, so much of TV these days is like CSI, NCIS, this, NCIS, Los Angeles, New Orleans, whatever, they're all crime scene investigators and, and coroners and, and looking for, around the crime scene to find out who, who left their mark, whose DNA is there, whose fingerprints are at the scene. But did you know that your DNA and my DNA are in the wounds of Jesus? If there was a coroner there, they would find your DNA in his wounds. It's true. The scripture says it was for our transgressions that he was bruised. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
And the chastisement that has brought us peace was on him. Now, we would all agree that the greatest crime ever committed was, was the crucifixion of Christ. Well, guess who, who committed that crime? You did. I did. So you and I have absolutely no right to ever look down on somebody and say, you're worse than I am. It does not get any worse than the crucifixion of Christ. If you think you're better than so-and-so, you do not understand the reality that your DNA is in the cross. Oh, it's a scandal. It's another scandal. And the ultimate scandal in it is that our DNA is there. Now, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block. The word stumbling block in the Greek language is scandalon. Scandalon. Paul said the cross is a scandal. But the, the, the word scandalon literally means tripstick. Tripstick. As in a trap. When I was a kid, um, I liked animals and birds, and, and I liked them all. Snakes. I once tied a, a snake in a knot, and my mother thought it was terrible. But I, I loved turtles, snakes. I loved them all. I wanted every pet. And uh, we'd go through it, walk past a pet store. Oh, I wanted everything. Oh, I'd oh, oh, give me. I but but I, they never get me a bird. So I decided I was going to trap a bird. So I got, a, I got a box, big box, and I tied a string to a stick. And I propped up the box and put the stick there and put bird seed under the box. And I hid behind a tree. And, and I waited for a bunch of birdies to get in there. And when they were in there, I'd pull the stick and the birds would fly away. I, I don't know as I ever caught a bird. I caught a chipmunk once that way. But th that's the trip stick. That's the scandal on. And the greatest scandal in history is the cross of Christ. And the cross of Christ is the trip stick. It caught you and me. It caught us committing the crime. And it caught us in the love of God that supervised the scandal. That God would love me enough to allow me to murder his son in order to redeem me. That in the very committing of the crime... I'm redeemed. That's love, and I'm caught in the scandal on of the cross. That's, that's John 18 and 19. But before those two incredible chapters, and I could literally preach a year on John 18 and 19. But before that, we come to John 17 which is like a backstage pass into what was going on inside Jesus that held the mark and finished the course. 
You know what a backstage pass is. If any of you ever gone to a concert or something, you got a backstage pass, have you ever done that? So when I was in high school, my dad was invited several times to speak to NFL teams before the, the Sunday game. So uh, my favorite team was the New York Jets and uh, Joe Namath, I love Joe, Broadway Joe. And um, so I went with my dad and I, I meet Broadway Joe and a bunch of the other players before the game in the locker room. That's kind of a backstage pass. And then here in Atlanta, a number of years ago, I was invited to speak to the promise keepers down at the Georgia Dome. Well, they said, well, you gotta come uh, and, and uh, we're gonna have a prayer a day before the event. So I get this backstage pass to get in to the Dome and there's Chuck Swindoll and Max Lucada and a bunch of the, 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 the singers and uh, Michael W. Smith, Don Thomas and, and others were there and it was a backstage pass. But my favorite backstage pass of, of all time was when um, I started dating Sherry and we were in Chicago going to college. I lived in New Jersey. My parents paid for us to go back to New Jersey uh, for a weekend. And Saturday night or Friday night, whatever it was, I took Sherry to my favorite place, New York City. And I did, all the, I did the whole thing. So we went to uh, uh, kind of Chinatown and checked that out. It, we went to Rockefeller Center and uh, we did Macy's. It was around Christmas, so the whole Macy's toy store and, and all this, we walked through that. We did a carriage ride in Central Park. And we're walking past Carnegie Hall and it says Andre Crouch. And I thought, man, I would love, I've got, we've got to go. So um, I, we thought, how are we going to do this? We see a Christian bookstore a block away, and we go in there, and they said, yeah, here's two tickets, um, uh, and you can just have them. I can't go. There are two extra tickets completely sold out. You can't get these tickets anywhere, but you can go, and these will get you backstage before the concert. You can go backstage. So I like it. Uh, I mean, I, I'm trying to impress Sherry, and, and I'm showing her the town, and now we got a backstage pass. And so we go back, we meet Andre, and, and one of my preacher buddies, uh, like I looked up to this guy, Stephen Olford, a great preacher in New York City, he was giving a devotional uh, before the concert and exhorting the whole team uh, before, and I got to hear all, I can still remember, he preached from Ephesians 6 on the armor of God. And it stuck in me. But that was my backstage. Oh, and then we go out to the concert, and these weren't just any tickets. We had box seats. We were right next to the stage in one of those round uh, seats overlooking uh, Andre. Yes. And, and it made a hit. I mean, it wasn't too long after she said, okay, I'll marry. <laughs> and that, that concert became an album. It's uh, uh, Andre Crouch Live at Carnegie Hall. And it went on to be the cover uh, picture for his greatest hits album. And, and, and in case you didn't know it, Andre uh, toured with Don Thomas. Yes, it's true. Yes. yes so... So, 
I mean, I just want you to know, Andre knows Don Thomas. <laughs> Hallelujah. Well, this is not, John 17 is not a backstage pass to a concert, but it's the backstage pass to the crucifixion. And look at, look at now, to, to understand John 17, you got to just see John 18, 1. Because it says here, when Jesus had spoken these words, after John 17, he, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden. So don't think John 17 took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. It did not. It happened before the Garden of Gethsemane. But now we pick it up, verse 1. John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Now, you know, it says in, Rome, uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Now, John 17, these first verses, are the joy set before him that motivated him to go to the cross. Yes. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Here's the joy. The joy. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. That's the joy set before him. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. That's the joy set before him, the joy of being able to give eternal life to those the Father has given to him. In verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the joy set before him, that, that he will have the joy of being able to give this eternal life to people. Look at verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Ha! Wow. If you mistakenly thought Jesus' life started in Bethlehem when he was born of Mary, you are mistaken. Jesus didn't start in Bethlehem. Jesus started, I mean, he didn't start. Before the worlds existed, he was with the Father. Because he's God. And now, during this interlude, still God, but on earth as God, now he's about to go back to that glory that he temporarily laid aside, he's now about to revisit. And he says, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Verse 9, I am praying for them. Now this is almost startling. I am not praying for the world. 
Let's just pause there. Jesus said, I'm not praying for the world. Isn't that interesting? Who's he praying for? He's praying for the followers of Christ. He's not praying for the world. And I, I got to just pause here. How often in, in our day do we allow the news feeds and the media and opinion makers and, 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 and cultural icons to distract us as if that's the big deal? Jesus never allowed anything in the world system to distract him. He didn't even pray about it, let alone get irritated by it. What's he praying for? He's already positioned the world in the last chapter when he was talking to his disciples. He said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So don't, don't fuss over the world. Don't, don't, don't get all, don't let your blood pressure boil over what the world is doing. Don't get distracted off the main thing. The main thing that Jesus focused, he's dialed in here. He's dialed in to his disciples. And, and, but then, then he expands it. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for those only, for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he, that's, that's you and me. Those who will believe and, and then lead others to believe and lead others to believe and lead others to believe. He's talking about through the ages he's here praying for his disciples and for all who will believe through his name down through history in every tribe and people and nation and ethnicity all over the world through all time. Those are the ones he's praying for. And all the time he's got the world in his hand. He's not, he's not concerned about He's praying. He's focused on those who will believe and those to whom he has the joy of giving eternal life. Now, how does he pray for these people? How does he pray for his disciples? This is so profound to me. How does he pray for the disciples of the disciples of the disciples? How does he pray? Well, it, it begins here in, in, in verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So the unity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is what he's praying now for his disciples to have the same unity that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have that we would have on earth. But he doesn't just pray it once. He comes back to it, verse 21, that they may all be one, all of them, through the ages, all ethnicities, all economic brackets, all political orientations that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe. That's the end game. What's on the line is the purity of the gospel that will convince others outside the, the family of the reality of God's love inside the family. 
And then again, verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I have given to them. And what is the glory that God has given us? The glory of Jesus, the glory of the Father that Jesus has given to us, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, that the world may know. That's the, here it is again, the end game, that the world may know that you have sent me and loved me, even as you have loved me. Wow. Praise God. This unity is not synthetic. Churches all across our nation, all around the world, try to dumb down things doctrinally to find common agreement. That will never work. We don't need to dumb down doctrine. We need purity of doctrine. We need the whole scripture and we need all of it. But what we need is an encounter with the presence of God that puts God in his place, puts us in our place, and puts the devil in his place. That's what we need. There will never be supernatural community in any church unless there's unity. But there will never be unity in any church unless there's humility. And there will never be humility in your heart or in my heart without an encounter with the holiness of God. And there will never be a fresh encounter with the holiness of God without the tripstick, without the scandal of the cross. The holiness of God sends you running, hiding. I can't take it. But the tripstick pulls us in. It's there that we confront the holiness, the perfection of God and at the same time our iniquity, and yet at the same time God's love for us in spite of our iniquity. We encounter in the cross both the justice and the mercy of God, the truth and grace in the cross. And I just want to say to you, if the cross means anything to you, it should mean everything to you. And if the cross means everything to you, you will have no problems putting down your personal political agendas or other agendas for the church because we've already got an agenda. Hallelujah! Hallelujah. And it's bigger than your puny little agenda. You know what? How many of you think the Father is going to answer the Son's prayer here. How many of you think? Does anybody have any doubt? I mean, this is, he's going to answer this. Well, he already has. In, in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says they were all in one accord devoted to prayer. So that's even before Pentecost. They were already in one accord. They were all perfectly united. And then when they encountered the presence of God among the church, they encountered the glory of God, exactly what Jesus prayed here that they would, they did. And then when they encountered the glory of God, their agendas were taken from them. And there were in the same place Jews and Romans, religious insiders, religious outsiders, men and women, 
Young and old were all there in that upper room encounter with God. And when God manifests himself, nobody's elbowing for position. Nobody's pushing their political agendas. What they are is humbled before God and grateful to even have a place at the table. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This is powerful. And, and it didn't end before Pentecost. After Pentecost, it just kept rolling. Listen to this. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Extravagant generosity that made no sense apart from the encounter with God. Apart from the humility that crushes personal agenda and striving and, and climbing over people and who's the greatest and all that is gone when we encounter the love of God in Christ at the cross and we're caught by the trapstick of the scandal of God in Christ. John 17, as I read it and sit under it, I see a picture of Jesus like being a diamond held in place by the prongs of his mission. And this is almost like the jeweler, the master jeweler of the father, refastening those prongs to make sure that the diamond would not move when he goes to the cross. You know, every once in a while, you got a decent diamond, you better go to the jeweler and have those prongs checked or you're, you're going to lose that thing. And this is Jesus surrendered to the Father as the jewel of all jewels. It's the pearl of great price. And, and here, this chapter is the re-strengthening uh, of each of those prongs, how Jesus set his face like a flint. This is the setting, the setting of the set. The set one, the Christ, being set and reset in place. And then he was able to walk out the gruesome, hideous, unjust scandal of his crucifixion. It's the backstage pass. This is the heart of Christ. And it gets to me. I hope it gets to you. It changes me. It changes us. And I just want to remind us as a people of the importance to live this out. That when pressures come from all sides to divide us, The same Father who set his Son would set you fully committed to the church, to the body, and to the glory of Christ's name, and to the dispensing of eternal life to those who desperately need salvation around us. Don't allow anything to disrupt the unity 
Because if you do, you are selling out. You're cheapening the jewel that Christ purchased for you. Disunity tarnishes the prize. No, don't. We as a church only want one trap stick. It's the cross. If you've got your own hidden agenda, you've got something you're pushing, it's more important than that. Frankly, we don't have fellowship. Or that trap stick you're carrying around with you, that thing needs to go. Oh, there's one trap stick. It's the price Christ paid. And in that is our unity. Father, thank you, thank you for your word. Thank you for your call on us as a people to live as followers of Christ, to hold out the, the good news of salvation to our community, to children, to youth, men, women. Lord, we are on mission with you. And Lord, there's nothing more scandalous and unjust than the cross. And for all around us who are wounded and um, have been abused, have been caught in, in the trouble of life. Lord, we're here for the needy. We're here for those. And Father, we have a Redeemer to share, a healer, a wounded healer. Flow, river, flow. River of healing, flow. River of salvation, flow. River of deliverance, flow. River of justice, flow. Of righteousness, of good works, flow. With perfect, unhindered unity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.